Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 17th, 2018. It is a Wednesday. It means it's time for interview day. Our guest today is John Moody. We've had him on to talk about many different subjects before, but they're all in some way always tied into and related to homesteading and food production. Uh, John is the author of a new book called The Frugal Homesteader. It's an awesome book. I think it could save anybody out there that wants to take the walk down the path that is homesteading. Lots of money, lots of time, and lots of frustration. So we'll have John on in just a moment to talk about that and a lot of other stuff, too. Um, <laughs> before we break, I, I'm laughing because of something that happens during this interview. You'll know it when you hear it. Anyway, uh, before we uh, get into all of this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. If you don't have ammo, what is your gun, guys? It's an overpriced club. That's all that it is. It's an overpriced club. It can't do what a gun's supposed to do. So you need ammo. You need lots of it. So you want to buy it in bulk so you have lots of it. And you save money when you buy it. And if you buy it you know, on the Internet, you want it to actually show up at your house like soon, like maybe tomorrow or the next day. That's what you get with bulk ammo. Lightning fast shipping, great price, uh, and great customer service. And they do a discount for members of the MSB. You can find that in the benefits section of the Member Support Brigade. Uh, but I'll tell you what, when I need more ammo, I go get it from bulk ammo. Because here's the way I look at it. <clears throat> If I'm sitting here today and it's Wednesday, and I'm like, you know, maybe this weekend I need to get by the gun shop and pick up some ammo or something like that. Like, then I might get to there Saturday. It might be next week, whatever. But if I go order it today, by Friday I'll have my ammo. That, that's what it's like doing business with bulk ammo. You just end up with your ammo faster and for the same price or less. So why would you go anywhere else but the company that supports this show and has done so for, I think, about six years now, Bulk Ammo's been supporting us. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine is an amazing publication. Uh, you get it four times a year in hard copy, and they have a lot of great stuff available on their website, too, which is at self-reliance.com. It's kind of like Mother Earth News used to be. I'm a longtime reader of Mother Earth News. And uh, back in the 80s, early 80s and 70s, Mother Earth News was nuts and bolts how-to, what to do. That's what it was. It wasn't a bunch of politics and a bunch of feels and other things like that. It was dead-on, 100% solid, factual how-to information. That's what Self-Reliance Magazine is, with just a little bit of a libertarian flair brought to you from the family of the people that brought you Backwoods Home Magazine for two decades. Kind of the passing of the torch in the next stage in the modern information age at self-reliance.com. And yes, they also do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up, let's take a look at this day in history. We're going back to the year 1931, October 17th. What happened on the state? Well, a lot of things. But probably the biggest name thing that happened on this day in history, a name that almost every person on the planet knows, at least every English-speaking person knows, Al Capone. Al Capone, no, he didn't commit you know, any kind of mass, uh, mass murder today. He didn't uh, you know, get in a fight and get his scar to name him Scarface today, no. On October 17th, 1931, gangster Al Capone is sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion 
and find $80,000. That might not seem like a lot, but in 1931, $8,000 is a lot of money. This signaled the downfall of one of the most notorious criminals of the 1920s and 30s. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1899 to Italian immigrants. He was expelled from school at 14 and joined a gang and earned his nickname Scarface after being sliced across the cheek during a fight. By 1920, Capone moved to Chicago, where he was soon helping to run crime boss Johnny Torino's uh, illegal enterprise, which included alcohol smuggling, gambling, and prostitution. Torrio retired in 1925 after an attempt on his life, and Capone, known for his cunning and brutality, was put in charge of the organization. Prohibition, which outlawed the brewing and distribution of alcohol, lasted from 1920 to 1933, proved extremely lucrative for the bootleggers and gangsters like Capone, who raked in millions in this underworld activity. Capone was at the top of the FBI's most wanted list by 1930, but he avoided long stints in jail until 1931 by bribing city officials, intimidating witnesses, and maintaining various hideouts. He became Chicago's crime kingpin by wiping out all his competitors through a series of gangland battles and slings, including the infamous Valentine's Day Massacre in 29 when Capone's men gunned down seven rivals. This event helped raise Capone's notoriety to a national level. Uh, I'm going to tell you something. So he ends up going down for a tax evasion. Of course, federal agent Elliot Ness, it's a guy's name that most people know as well. Elliot Ness is the Untouchables, right? Part of his group is the Untouchables. Um, because of Capone. Without Capone, Elliot Ness is nobody. I, I really don't think that they had to get Capone on IRS charges. I really don't think so. I think they could have made something stick. I think our government made a decision to take him down with the IRS. Those of you who are a little younger, you may not notice. I mean, even in the 70s and 80s, right? And this is the 30s, early 30s. This is 1931, this guy goes to prison for this. In the 70s and 80s, it was very common to hear when people were talking about the IRS, the name Capone. I'm, I'm sure it still happens today, but not like it used to be. Like, well, they even got Capone. Like, when anybody was talking about their tag, it was a fear. If they could get Scarface... The real Scarface, not the fake one that they made for a movie for Pacino to play in, right? The real they could get the real Scarface, the kingpin in Chicago. They could get him. Well, they could get you. And I've always believed that that the decision was made to take him down that way, so that they could use his notoriety and fame. Because what good does a hideout do you if you can be found anyway? What does a hideout do for you if you get arrested and you spend a short time in jail? Well, they had you if they wanted to prosecute you for something else. The story is that they really couldn't make anything stick. I think they could make things stick. But I think they made a point, and I think it was more important to them to make a point and make sure taxpayers were obedient. Those are my thoughts. I can't prove it, but I certainly think that it's at least plausible. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today. He is not a gangster running illegal booze. He is a homesteader and a damn good one. His name is John Moody. He's the author of a new book called The Frugal Homesteader. He's here today to talk to us about that book, about homesteading, uh, about things in the agricultural world as well. And with that, hey, John, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, great. Thank you for having me. John, we got you to, back here to talk about a bunch of stuff today. We might even find out the answer to a conspiracy theory, but uh, <laughs> including we're going to be talking about your new book called The Frugal Homesteader and uh, a lot of other great stuff. But there's probably people that have never heard of John Moody, uh, even though you've been on the show, I think, two or three times. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background? Take us back to, like, your, your spacing out in study hall or something in high school. And uh, how does that, what kind of wonky path leads you to what you're doing now? 
Oh, it's it's definitely a wonky path because had you known me in high school, you, you would have went to the local bookie and taken everything you had and bet it that you'd never find me here. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, you know, I say when I'm, you know, talking of different conferences, you know, if you have family, friends who are just like really resistant to these kind of ideas and you think there's no hope for them, like I am the ultimate example that there is hope. So we're here to talk about your uh, your new book again. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about kind of what was the impetus to, uh, to write that book? Well, I've been speaking at conferences for a few years, and I had a bunch of editors from different publishing houses basically stalking me. Um, and so they had wanted me to write a book for a few years. And I started to write a book on soil, and I kind of um, got bogged down in that project. And I, I was kind of looking for um, a really great uh, book idea that I could really crank out and kind of get moving forward on writing. Um, Joel Salatin, who's a good friend of mine, he's been yelling at me for years that I needed to get productive writing more books. And I kept pointing out to him that I have two and a half times as many kids as he does, um, which is a disadvantage when you're trying to write books for sure. Um, and so finally this past winter had enough space um, and a really good idea to pursue to kind of get uh, a good book done and out there for people to enjoy. Awesome. So, you know, we're talking about homesteading today. Uh, it's a big focus of what you do and what your books, your newest books about. You actually have another book coming out later this year, I think. We'll talk about that maybe in a bit. Um, but with homesteading, I think one of the biggest things people need to do is avoid making mistakes. So what are some of the most common mistakes you uh, maybe have made yourself or you've seen other homesteaders make? Yeah, well, so so I'll, you know, I'll come clean to the choir first. My biggest mistake is not finishing what I start in terms of projects, especially like getting a project 80% done, you know, like, oh, we're remodeling the bathroom, get the new floor in, get get the new everything in, and then, oh, there's a little bit of trim paint and some trimming and this and that. I'll eventually get to it. Um, and, and building up just, you know, you know, project detritus. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a big one I struggle with um, that my wife has kindly put up with and is helping me um, no longer engage in because, you know, and, and again, I think this is more a guy problem um, because, like, you, you know, it's a real problem when when I'm away traveling, speaking and stuff, because if things work like 80 percent of the time, that really means they work a lot less when I'm not around. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, like, I know how they don't work. You know, yeah, I yeah. know how the chicken coop door is wonky and how you pull it just this way to get it to close. Um. Or, you know, it, and so guys tend to, you know, since we so naturally kind of adapt to things being less than ideal, um, then we kind of set up our family um, for frustration when we're gone and they have to kind of step in to this melee of unfinished stuff that we have going on. 
Yeah, yeah. I my yeah, wife my has said things to me like, like, "You're a really you're good a really doer, good but you're not a very good finisher or cleaner upper." <laughs> yeah, we're in the same boat there. Um, you know, so so that's one. Again, I, I think it it's definitely one I struggle with, and it's one I think is more common for guys. Um, you know, another big one is basically like people get into homesteading. And, you know, they think, oh, well, if, you know, 10 chickens is good, 100 chickens is better. If a 1,000-square-foot garden is good, a 10,000-square-foot garden is better. And they basically set themselves up for frustration, financial loss, and failure. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's it, you know, they just, they, it's either go big or go home right out of the gate. Um. And it just, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that end well, um, for people who are homesteading or trying to transition into this stuff. Gotcha. Um, so if you were to prioritize a few things when setting up a homestead, kind of what would they be? Oh, goodness. Um, the first one would be any labor saving automation that you can kind of build into your systems. Um, you, you know, that that could be like layout and design. Because um, when I've done consulting for homesteaders, I'm always amazed at like how little attention is paid to where different stuff is placed and put. So they're always like doubling back and, you know, having to walk the same path three times when doing chores. Um a few months ago, I asked on a kind of homesteading Facebook group what people spent the majority of their weekly time homesteading doing. And a bunch of people were talking about, you know, like watering animals, watering their growing spaces and weeding and stuff. And I'm just like, who wants to spend the bulk of their time doing those tasks when all of those can be minimized and automated out of your life. <laughs> no, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, one of the things I have taken some flack from by some people that are into the whole concept of sustainable is aquaponics. Um, but, you know, my aquaponics systems, everything grows in soil, but I also don't water. I don't weed. Um, those systems run themselves. And in any way that you can do that, I think, is, is hugely beneficial because – I mean, my, my buddy David puts it this way. What would you do if you didn't have to do it? Because that's what automation is. Aut automation is setting up something like you do it once, and then it does it itself. So how much could you do if you only had to do things once, and then they would do themselves again over and over and over again? And it does kind of free up some of the stuff you were talking about. Like when you – I know exactly what you mean because I don't have everything automated. But when I leave, that's when everything breaks. <laughs> and, and, and my wife is pretty slick on figuring stuff out. So, like, she will figure stuff out, but it'll take her, you know, 15 minutes and, and misery um, uh, being sprayed in the face with a, with a hose nozzle or something like that um, to do something I could do in, like, 10 seconds because I've fixed it 800 times, but I guess I ain't fixed it right to where it don't break no more because as long as I can just, oh, there's that thing. Like you talked about, like, oh, yeah, that, that door, when it's fixed that way, you just kind of lift the corner and push it like that, right? Well, once you know that, you know that, and it's easier to do that whenever it happens than to, to back up and, and make it work right sometimes 
because you got 10 other things to do. But I agree, like, the more you can automate, the better. Yeah, it's, you know, like, um, like with pigs, we, we first, when we first started raising pigs a number of years ago, we were watering them in troughs, which they would spill and stuff. So then we upgraded to a 50 gallon barrel with the pig nipples plumbed in. Okay. So, so, so that's better, but we're still having to water the pigs, especially, you know, July, August, September when it's, you know, especially this year, it's just been brutally hot. You know, the four or five pigs will go through the 50 gallons in just a couple of days. Um, so this winter, I'm upgrading to two 300 gallon IBC totes that are going to be, um, set up along the side of my barn. So I'll be able to run the barn's gutters right into the totes. Like as long as we get even moderately decent rain, we're never going to need to water the pigs again. You know, so I'll spend two, three hours this winter setting up this system that is going to save us, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours a year for many, many years to come. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's something else I would kind of tell people. It's like everybody's excited about spring, right? Spring. The, the, the time of the year to get the most done is generally winter because oh, yeah. you don't have 10 other things going on. You, that's like my, my project mecca. Like we have our workshop coming up in November, week of November 7 through 11. And it's kind of like then you go into Thanksgiving, you have some downtime. Like that's like from that point in through March, that's when I'm doing all my new building and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, you're in Texas, so it's probably a little oh, it's more. That's great. <laughs> you know, um, like generally for me, it's it's this kind of November, December, early January window, at least in Kentucky. Because once we get into deep, the last few years, February and March have just been um, all bets are off. It's just so mucky. And so, you know, well, and, you know, that that's another thing. It's just like. Another good rule of thumb a lot of people don't understand is like something that sounds like a great idea in spring and summer and fall is misery in winter, <laughs> especially if you're farther north. Yeah, absolutely. So it might be more like fall, spring, early spring for you guys, right? Like, I mean, the reason we don't like we don't actually have a lot going on in the middle of our summer because that's like our like like the Satan's winter, right? Like oh yeah, you here, can't. yeah. Like, but I don't want to go out there and work. I almost killed myself this year. I, I passed out from freaking heat exhaustion this year, uh, working on a project in our heat. Um, so it's kind of like you got to balance that. But like, find I guess the better advice than instead of do it in winter is like find your find your optimum time and then budget in time wise your projects for that time. For, and, and, and then, like, when you think, well, I'll be able to do this in two Saturdays, okay, it will be four, right? Just accept that. Like, the, unless you've done it before and you really know when you're doing something for the first time, whatever amount of time you think it's going to take you, just double it. And if, if you get it done less time, then good. Then do something with that bonus time. Give yourself a cookie or something. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't mention cookies. That makes me hungry. So... I got a question for you, man. Like, uh, so I was reading your notes here, and it seems like you might have an answer to this. 
question everybody's been wanting an answer for for like 70 years now almost. Who really did kill JFK? <laughs> Oh, man, if I tell you, I'll have to kill you. No. So, so we can't go there. <laughs> All right. I thought we were going to get an answer here. I don't know. Uh, um, where do you see the greatest possible savings uh, and needless expenses for homesteaders? You know, what kind of stuff do they usually waste money on, and, and, and why do you think it's a waste? A tractor is, is generally number one. Um, and, and why they do, why do they do it? You know, I think, I think a lot of people like move to the country. I don't know. Maybe they think if they own a tractor, they'll be like accepted. Like I finally arrived. It's, it, it's like the homesteaders version of the Super Bowl ring or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, where it's just like, if I have a tractor, I'm now a real farmer or a real homesteader. Cause you know, we've been homesteading and farming now for just about 10 years and the most mechanized pieces of equipment I own, you know, beyond like a truck is my chainsaw and my log splitter. I, I don't even own a tiller. Um, and I have yet to, you know, like for the number of days a year that I need certain other pieces of equipment, there just isn't almost any, mathematical situation where it isn't cheaper for me to barter, borrow, or rent compared to buy almost anything I need. Um, so, you know, like, I, I just don't get people who tie up five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in pieces of infrastructure that they rarely use. You know, even my log splitter, um, when I originally bought it, I bought it with a friend. So him and I split the, cause we were both like, we're not going to use a log splitter in Kentucky more than six, seven, eight days a year. You know, what do you need a whole log splitter to yourself for? Um, so I think a lot of the needless expense is just like buying livestock trailers, buying, you know, trailers, buying tractors, buying implements that are that are single use um and that for the most part I, I call them you know basically just like money rusting on the wall or in the lawn absolutely i think that like one of the ways to help avoid that is kind of the permacultural approach of let's design zone one first right because i promise you you do not need a tractor for zone one you might even eventually want a tractor for your your place maybe you will i don't know But I know that in your zone one, you're not going to need one because that's not how zone one works. And when you figure out what you can do with that, then you start to say, okay, what is kind of my next level? And you come in a much more logical progression. And I'll admit, I didn't go out and buy a tractor. I bought, I did buy a, it's not a tractor, it's a lawnmower, right? And I, I we did need that. Um, but I didn't, I didn't go off and buy like a, you know, front end loader or something like spend thousands of dollars on it. But I did get disjointed when I got here because I was like, finally, like, woohoo, I have acres. And you start doing things all over the place. And, and what I ended up coming back to is that zone one. And as we started to actually build the zone one the way we should have in the first place, we're like, well, we, there's only two of us. I mean, we don't really need much more food than we can produce in, you know, uh, you know, 20 
24-foot beds is way more food than two people probably really need. Uh, and then once we cut back the ducks, so now we have like a homestead-sized flock. That's made life like my property could be an acre, and it would be enough. I'm glad I have more, but an acre would be more than enough, honestly. Yeah, that's – yeah, and, you know, as we talked about, a lot of homesteaders just they, – they, you know, get far more chickens than they actually need. They get far more growing space going than they actually need. And then it all goes sideways because somebody gets sick or they go on vacation. And it, you're never going to regret starting smaller and being successful and expanding as it becomes clear you need it. Um, and, you know, in terms of equipment, like at least in most parts of the country, um, on my street alone, you know, as the curvy, windy road that heads back to our place, there's like 15 tractors just sitting around. If if I need hay done, you know, in my hay fields, because a lot of people are like, well, what do you do for hay? I'm like, man, I have so many neighbors who already have all the equipment, all the experience, and I, I can pay them a fraction of what it would cost me to put up hay if I need hay. And, and even better, like, you know, for, for the most part in a lot of the country, except for drought years, I can even buy in hay cheaper than paying somebody to come in hay my property, which would then let me, you know, basically run more cattle. You, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to cut the cookie or cut the cake or whatever idiom you want to use without getting into expensive infrastructure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So where do you think maybe people really should be spending the majority of their investment? Uh, power tools, hand tools. Uh, you know, like my, you know, the, the Mora knife we have, the headlamps we have, uh, multi-tool. That is stuff we use all the time. Our, our medical kits that we made, um, you know, we often need something out of the medical kit because we have, you know, family of seven. Um, so, you know, good hand tools. Um, there's a company, I think it's SWG or SWH, um, Earth Tools here in Kentucky carries their shovels and their pitchforks. Um, we, you know, we have like four or five pitchforks. It's like the Hunger Games. If me and the kids are all working together, for who get those pitchforks that come from Earth Tools versus the pitchforks that come from Lowe's or Home Depot or, you know, some other mass-produced store. Um, really good hand tools. You will immediately know and feel the difference. And, and the difference is just amazing. I would concur with that. Um, like one of the things we came to rely on here were, were uh, like rogue hole, rogue, rogue hole, rogue hole, hoe, and, and other tools from that company that they're they're built like tanks. Yep. And you know we have a lot of places here where we have a foot of soil or less, and then we're at solid limestone rock. And I have shattered. I mean, literally, it looked like it was glass. Uh, I don't know what the right term for them is. I think they call them a troweling spade. We call them a sharpshooter down here. Uh, they're the shovels that are kind of long and thin and uh -huh. really good for like rubbing out roots and stuff like that. If you know what I'm talking about, I was using one to like knock some rock out here and it, 
it fractured and like pieces of it flew off. Now, yes, it's rock, but that's not a shovel should not do that. And that was a Lowe's, you know, sharpshooter again, whatever the heck they're actually called. Do you know the type of shovel I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Just broke. Like, like I have broken handles, but not the actual shovel itself. Oh man. Well, and, and you know, that makes, that reminds me of like, you know, things you do want to spend money on. You know, one reason you don't want to get tied up in tractors and, and a lot of other, um, expensive equipment is because then you may not have the money to build some of your more important infrastructure really, really well. Um, so years, a few years ago, we built our first high tunnel on the property. Which is just amazing. Um, you know, like if you're talking about something to spend money on, we built a 2100 square foot high tunnel. That 2100 square feet of protected growing space can grow more food than our 10,000 square feet of open space right next to it. it, it it's just incredible. Um, how, you know, how value, how valuable and productive that space is compared to almost anything else on our property. Um, but I was talking to our local USDA extension agent when we were going through that process and stuff. And he pointed out that like, he did not expect a third of the high tunnels built in our couple County area to still be standing in another three to five years because they were just so poorly built and so chintzy. Um, and, and he looked at ours and he's just like, we have the same problem you do. We have those limestone floater rocks. And so when we were building the high tunnel, we didn't know exactly how deep they were everywhere. And on the north side of the high tunnel, um, all of the, you know, uprights went all the way in 30 inch depth, no problem. On the south side of the high tunnel, as we were driving the, the uprights, um, we hit a limestone shelf. And the, the, the steel I got, I think I'm trying to remember the name of the company. It's, um, Zimmerman's High Tunnels out of Missouri. Um, so, you know, we're using a, you know, hydraulic ram post driver to drive these into the ground. And uh, it's a farmer friend of mine who's built like three or four high tunnels, helped me put mine up. And um, we hit that, you know, we hit the ram, hit the pipe, the pipe hit the rock. And you, you do it just a couple of times just in case it's a small rock just in the way. And it did not deform the, the pipe at all. Wow. <laughs> because, you, you know, like – and the rock is so hard, you know, so like, oh, dang, we're going to I'm going to have to hire somebody, bring someone in with a rock breaker so that I can break the shelf up, move some of the rock out to get these uprights to depth. So I, we hired, you know, the local guy who does all the fencing in the Tri-County area. So he shows up here with a tractor that's the size of my house, you know, just like, I don't know, three digit horsepower it has like this 30 foot rock breaking ram and he hit that shelf for over an hour and made no progress. Like, like he could, he could, he, he said, he's like, 
he said it's the first time in a number of years he's been to a place that has rock that thick and that hard in our area. And, and his, his, you know, rock breaker couldn't break the rock, but that rock couldn't break the steel tubing that I got from Zimmerman's. Um, and so, you know, like if you're going to build a high tunnel, if you're going to build a bar and if you're going to build an outbuilding, don't skimp there. No, no. How did you, did you, what did you eventually do then? Um, we, we had to cut the pipe. Um, so we, we cut the pipe and I had to quick Crete that whole side in. Um, and so I think like out of the 13 uprights, um, maybe five made it to depth. Um, another probably four were like in the 20 inch range. Um, and then there's a few of them that we could only get a good, you know, 12, 16 inches down in. Um, so I, I had to spend, you know, a hundred bucks on quickcrete and just cut the pipe and quickcrete them in. Um, and you know, I could get away with it partly because the south side of our high tunnel is, um, we have a windbreak just like 30, 40 feet away. It's a hundred, 200 foot thick section of woods that sits in between our farm and then all the properties on the south side of our farm. Um, so the only side of the high tunnel that really takes any hard windage is the north side. So those are good and deep. And, and the south side just has a whole, you know, trying to think we probably put 200 pounds per post. So you're looking at, you know, three, 4,000 pounds of quick creed at least along that south side to anchor those in. Well, it ain't going nowhere. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> that, that's the yeah. plan. Well, well, but, but man, I know like so many people, you go on Facebook, you go into some of the farming groups, um, and man, people's high tunnels, they are so consistently underbuilt. They're, they're built for like the five year storm or the 10 year storm and not the 20 year or 50 year storm. That we get about every 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, so like, you know, we're in Kentucky. Yeah. We are not a state known for snow. We got right after we finished the high tunnel, um, 20 inches of he of heavy wet snow in six hours. Just total freak snowstorm. And me and my friend who helped me build mine, yeah, um, our tunnels, e even without clearing snow, our tunnels were completely fine. Because, you know, we're not doing six-foot spacing on flimsy steel, you know, flimsy tubular steel. So yeah, we probably spent an extra thousand bucks on the high tunnel, but the high tunnel's not collapsing on top of three, four, five, ten thousand dollars worth of, you know, food and sales. Yeah, absolutely. And plus then you also have to fix it. And then you don't have it. And I think oh, that's gosh. like the other thing. And like, you know, until you get things right, a high tunnel would be a exam big example, but there's lots of little examples. Like there are there have been days where I thought, okay, I had a day to do some projects. And I spent most of that day fixing stuff that wasn't quite finished right the first time. And oh, yeah. it, it eats time. Yeah. It just eats time and resources and money. 
Yeah, well, and you know, probably another thing, and this is a mistake I made with the high tunnel, is I figured, oh, I'll build the high tunnel, and then I'll think about um, how I'm going to do the watering in the high tunnel, how I'm going to do weed management in the high tunnel. And so another piece of advice I'd give is when you're doing a big project, especially, you know, like when you're building a high tunnel for the first time, especially if you're not used to doing construction or other things, it's a big, complicated project. Um, and, and, you know, since I don't have equipment, I need to borrow equipment. Um, we had, we had some old concrete pylons in the way because, uh, uh, you know, a house used to be where we were putting in the high tunnel. So all these different moving parts, I was like, oh, I'll get back to water and some of this other stuff later. And then I realized like, man, like it's a lot harder to do that stuff now that the tunnel's built. I really wish I would have done all that planning from the beginning, even though it might have slowed me down a couple months. Because, um, you know, it, it, you always think it's going to be easy to go back and do something. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the house we live on on our farm. Uh, when we, before we moved in, even though I knew it needed a lot of work, I was just like, oh, like, once we're there, we'll be able to deal with some of this. But now it's me, my wife, and five kids in this house. And I'm just like, how on earth would I ever even have the space to do some of these projects now that we're in here? Absolutely, man. So with all this talk of value, what do you think the most valuable things you have on your homestead are? Um, beyond, like, the skills and experience we have as a family, um, in terms of, like, actual stuff, it would be the soil we've built and the high tunnel. And, and, and you know, and obviously our barn is super valuable because um, storage space is at a premium. Really wish we had a concrete floored building. Um, and that's like in our step up from this property, if if that can come to fruition, um, you know, a workshop type building would be super valuable. But for us, it's, you know, the soil, the high tunnel, um, they're just so incredibly productive um, at this point. So you, you just can't beat them. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, if you could change one thing about your homestead, what would it be? I would rotate it 180 degrees in orientation. Okay. Because it, it slopes all north by northwest. And so even though we're in Kentucky, it's more like we're in central Indiana. Um. Because it's – and it slopes down. So like our entire property slopes down and away north by northwest. Um, so it's just if, – if I were to hopscotch through those woods over to my neighbor's properties, um, I would have like a 30 to 45-day longer growing season by traveling four or 500 feet. <laughs> gotcha, man. So, uh, and so like, that, was that something you even had a choice with, though? Like a lot of times when you get a place, like did you build your your house or did you buy a land with a house and then start, you know what I mean? Like could you have really completely changed that or could you have just done it a little better? Well, so, you know, when we when we decided to move out of the city and become homesteaders, 
I grew up hunting. I grew up fishing, but I grew up um, in urban Youngstown, Ohio. So, you know, I, I grew up on a typical 1980s cookie cutter street of houses. Never had a garden. Um, again, you know, like we fished and hunted. My dad was a big outdoorsman, but we never grew anything. Uh, my only experience with growing things was when we were laying pipe. My dad had a pipeline construction business in Northeast Ohio. And we, you know, I would be driving stick shift left handed for him. I'd be sitting, you know, shotgun, um, shifting while he held the topo and other maps as we drove through cornfields. That, that, that was the extent of my experience with like land and growing stuff. Um, so when we decided to move, um, I just finished my master's work and, um, we had two kids, I think already and a third on the way. So we didn't have much money and we really didn't know what to look for land wise. Um, and so we came across this beautiful, isolated, gorgeous, clearance priced 30 acre property. And we're like, Oh, we're sold. Like we just hopped right on it. Um, and you know, at the time I didn't know better about, you know, orientation and soil and layout. Um, I knew enough that one reason I really, we really liked this property is, you know, even though Kentucky is a pretty big state for corn and soy, especially, you know, we're in the central western half of the state. Um, and, you know, the farther west you go, the worse it gets. We're in c- completely encased on all sides in woodland. So we're completely protected from overspray and drift and, and a whole lot of other nonsense um, that can happen on a less protected property. Um, but but some of the other stuff just wasn't even on my radar. And so we bought it, and it wasn't until a couple years later that I realized, like, you know, we have the, – the soil we started with was less than half a percent organic matter. Um, I'll, I'll send you a picture you can put in the show notes you want of our native soil because it is um, – it, it's basically some of the worst soil in the <laughs> state. Yeah, there's a lot of people, I think, when you do a lot of work and you do build soil and you improve soil, they always kind of look at it like, oh, well, you're you're lucky. And it's it's good to have a record of, well, this is where we started. You know, this is uh, okay. this is this is where we started because a lot of people I don't think get it. I mean, they think like I, Ben Falk's place is a lot like that too. Like his soil was crap. That land had been raped over and over and over again. And you look at it now, and it looks gorgeous. Well, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Oh yeah, it's you know you know you're either very lucky or very rich or you work very hard <laughs> to get good soil. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And I'd say that, like, like we were talking about what's the most valuable thing that you can have on your homestead. I think good soil ranks way up there. And whether it be because you found it that way or you made it that way, then, like, keeping it that way is just as important as, like, not wasting your money. Uh, maybe more so. Like, dirt's expensive. I mean, really, when you look at it that way. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you think about the value. You know, I think it was even John Deere had a little thing they put out. It was like 
the value of 1% organic matter per acre. And it was like 1% organic matter is like $800 of value per acre. And so like on our farm, our main growing space started at less than half a percent and it runs anywhere now from like 18 to 23 hmm. percent. So you different. Yeah. Just, <laughs> and you, know, you, you just think about the incredible value of all that organic matter in terms of, you know, mineral retention and mineral availability and productivity, yield and pest resistance and drought resistance and so much stuff. Um, it, it always kills me to see people squandering their soil or doing stupid things to it. Yeah, I mean, you probably know this with your background, but I think a lot of people in America do not. Our number one export from the United States is topsoil. Whoa. Our, maybe you didn't know that. So our number I one export is topsoil. And I do not mean it in the way that means like we pack it up on barges and we ship it somewhere good. That would oh, be okay. a, that would be a problem. But as in the if you take by metric tons, the number one thing that leaves this country never to return every year. Yeah, down the Mississippi. <laughs> down the Mississippi, up in the wind, off of the coast, in every river and stream, it's topsoil. We export more topsoil than any other single commodity, and we literally get nothing for it. You know, if we export coal, well, at least we get money. Now, I'm not saying we should be, but like you can at least make that that logical argument. If we export apples, you know, because for instance, Japan really can't do well growing apples for 300 million people on an island the size of like, I don't know, like twice the size of Illinois, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can send them apples and that might have a lot of energy and cost associated with it, but then they give us money and we can do something with that. We can give people jobs and we can grow more apples or we can invest in infrastructure or whatever, right? Like, This is like the most valuable thing in the world, literally, because all life depends on it. And we are sending more of it to the oceans than any single other thing that we export anywhere. And that's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. Yeah, but, but Jack, we get ethanol. In oh. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then we, then we make like a horsepower worth of ethanol with three horsepower worth of energy while exporting the most valuable commodity in the world ever to the ocean and getting nothing back for it. Now it makes even more sense, right? <laughs> and when you say it that way, people are like, I, I've, I've explained it that way to people, and you see them roll their eyes. It's like, well, what that means is either you don't understand it or you don't believe it. So if you don't understand it, then I'm, I'm speaking above your level of comprehension. Bye. If you don't believe it, go check my data. And then once you once you think about it, it's kind of horrifying because this is oh. the breadbasket of the world right here, and we're destroying our ability to produce food. I think some of our states like Iowa, et cetera, if they weren't so flat, they would already be deserts. The topography is forgiving enough that – in spite of our stupidity, we're holding on by a thread. Yeah, I just drove to Kansas, and I was just amazed at what I saw. Yeah. <laughs> and But hey, you know, you, you left out one more thing we get, Jack. We, we get a nice national debt through okay. all those subsidies to make all that inefficient ethanol and so other corn and soy-based stuff. <laughs> 
so we borrow money at interest to do all this that we don't have and will never pay back. Yeah, it, to put it, our grandchildren it, into hawk. It's just the logical case for all this is just getting better and better and better all the time. I think we oh, should do more of this. And yeah, just in case anybody out there doesn't speak sarcasm, I'm not serious. <laughs> I'm gonna get some email, you know, where you hear, you can hear, you read it, and you can hear the keyboard being smashed when they're sending it to you, and you're like, dude, it was a, it was a joke. It don't, I don't, never mind, delete. Um, but on that note, like of like getting to that thing, like I was looking at your notes here, and we, you know, you said maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the uh, the stuff and more in the, the larger macro of things, like these uh, the the massive farm bailouts. I know because of your background with. Uh, legal defense and stuff like that. You're pretty switched on to the totality of farming. Um, what's up with that? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the, the the farm bailouts, if you want to call them that? Oh man, they're just they're just such a disaster. So like, you know, corn alone in like the last 20 years in America has received over a hundred billion dollars in subsidies and bailouts. Like. You know, this, these are fantastical sums of money. Um, and, and, you know, like, uh, we don't want to go too far down the, the Trump train line of, you know, but like the, the announcement, you know, about relaxing the ethanol rules is just another way to bail out the, the broken corn and soy subsidy system. Um, so, you know, like it's one of the few times I've been like, ah, oh, come on, man. <laughs> Like, what are you doing here? So they don't need more bailouts. They need to stop growing so much corn and soy and re-diversify the farm base in these states. So it's just, you know, it's it's just such a broken thing. And I don't know if anytime soon we're going to actually see it substantially change. You know... When you, you bring in the Trump thing, like, and of course, you know, we're talking about the bailouts with the re response to tariffs and stuff like that. The disingenuousness of the anti-Trump people, and this is not pro-Trump, this is pro-fact. like So, of like, you know, farmers don't want subsidies, they want markets. That was the big chant when that came out a few months ago. And I'm like, every damn one of these farmers you're talking about has been on nothing but subsidy for decades This is just more subsidy. Well, I guess they like that subsidy. That's good, but not more subsidy. Oh, you know, the old, it's so ridiculous. Fa farmers are the best at bringing home the pork when it comes to politics. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, like, man, pork and farmers have been married politically for a long time, and and I mean, you know, like in my area, um. You know, like farmers will cuss and curse up and down when the banks are bailed out. And then as soon as you know, they hear about USDA programs being cut, will, you know, burn, you know, burn people in effigy. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Know? It, it, you know, in a way, it's not their fault either. It's like it is, but it isn't like this whole system was set up to be that way. Because if you tell the farmer, we'll get off the subsidies, he's like, well, then I get out of business. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where I, you know, that's where like in some of the talks I've given on this subject, um, you know, it's like I, I have great compassion for, you know, the, the farm base in America because the government, you know, the government, um, you know, and especially Earl Butts get big or get out. 
in the 60s. And, you know, few things in America are as regulated as food and farming. You know, like, like people get all upset when the government messes with their light bulbs and messes mm-hmm. with their toilets. But like every single calorie you consume in America is messed with by multiple layers of government stupidity. And, and most people barely bat an eye. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. The and like if you want to understand the regulations in farming, try farming even small scale. You'll 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 figure it out really quick. Yeah, that's why you mentioned your book. Um, the guy that you co-wrote it with, no less than Joel Salatin, and I'll admit to being a little jealous, John. Um, you know, he has another book, and, and what's it called? You know which book I'm talking about? Oh yeah, everything I want to do is illegal. And, and the, the preposterous nature of that book is how accurate the title is. Like, I think you were at Permaculture Voices the year he spoke the first time. I don't know if you were or not. But what I remember him saying was that what the main thing that, like, pushed him over the edge to write that book was the fact that he was writing books. And it was basically illegal for him to write his books in his office, in his farmhouse, because it was a non-agricultural activity and property that was zoned for agricultural use. Or something, <laughs> and you just you just sit there and go like, what, 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 what? Or maybe that was Liberty Forum. I don't know. Some place I heard him talk about that. And I, would, I, like, well, first of all, like, that's one of those problems you can solve by not telling them that's what you're doing. That's you know, but like, why is that a thing? Well, I mean, you know, the why is basically uh, it's a it's a combination of the Dolores Umbridges of the world with um. My cousin Vinny is unproductive in any other job or position, so let's create a cozy government place to tuck him away for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's yeah, a lot of that. Hearing that now, and that's you're going to hear that more in a lot more industries. Like people right now are saying that about like cashiers, like they're just not capable of doing another job, so we can't have this automated checkout thing. And it's like, man, stuff's going to change, and people need to learn to roll with it. Oh yeah, it's. I, I'm really interested to see where some of the farming technology, how that impacts, you know, things moving forward. Where, you know, when you start having robots that can weed, um, and do other things, like, oh man. <laughs> so it's, they're talking about having micro drones now that can fly around and recognize pest insects. And basically, like Star Wars style, vaporize them with a little laser beam. Yeah, right. I'd love for somebody to do that to squash vine borer. I'd be all for that technology. I gotta say, they are my number one hated enemy: the squash vine borer and the squash bug. The, the bug is not as bad, but either one of them, nothing eats them. So you can build up all the predator activity you want. They don't care. They're doing head spins on your zucchini. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, both oh. of them got to go. I've seen a chicken eat a squash bug once, and it, it, it made chicken sounds that I can translate into human. It was something like "no, no, 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 God, no, no, never again," and it ran away. So they must burn. <laughs> they must burn really bad, you know. Um, there must be something about them. It's horrible. So nothing eats the dadgone things, and like that would be actually you know, like a legitimate use of technology. Let's start. Let's let's do things that are mechanical in nature versus like biologically changing the genome of a species by introducing DNA from a fish to it. That 
when I look at a genetic modification, I, I just think that you, you people never read a science fiction novel in your life. Because you, you like, if you did, you wouldn't do that. Like, you would think there's something could go wrong here, very, very wrong. Oh yeah. By the way, since you mentioned Joel, uh, this this might interest you and listeners. But Joel, Joel, about eight months ago, um, we were having lunch, and he broached an idea of putting on a conference, uh, totally in line with his "Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal" book called the Rogue Food Conference. Hmm. Basically, you know, his idea was to have a conference where people who are interested in learning how to circumvent, frustrate, avoid the the regulatory system while getting stuff done could come to this conference and learn from people who are doing that. All the workarounds for raw milk or chicken or this or that or the other. Um, and so it looks like, you know, him and I talked about it over the course of about half a year and, um, he's now ready to like pull the trigger. And so I think in winter of 2020, so we're talking like, I guess about 16 months out, 14 months out, um, we're, we're going to try and make this event happen. So it, it should be a rip Rory's time to say the least. Well, I'm happy to help you guys promote that. That, that, that sounds like a blast. That sure. really does. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Just a, a conference basically completely devoted to thumbing your nose at the regulatory state. You know, our, our solution to raw milk, uh, in West Virginia, where they don't even let you sell it as pet food was to sell it as a soil amendment. <laughs> so, I mean, that just shows you there's always, there is always a way around any of their bullshit. And it's how creative can you be? And I know you're a fan like I am of Jeff Lawton's work as well. And one of the things he said was when there's a design to be done, if you're a good designer, the more restrictions you contend with, the more elegant the design. And he was talking more about landform restrictions or like catchment restrictions where if I take water from one catchment, it has to be returned to the same catchment before it leaves. That can make some things we do at swells and ponds complicated. But if we, if we really thought about it, that we could actually harness those restrictions and make an elegant design. And, and, and my point to him was, I think you're absolutely right, but the same thing applies to man's restrictions, the legal restrictions, uh, what have you. We can design systems that are so resilient that they're immune to many of the things that government puts in our way. And I think there's a point where if you're, if you're diverse enough with that and you, you do it in enough ways, they get to a point where if they still keep coming to bother you, they start to look stupid. And about the only thing that really deters government is when they look like they're being stupid and they're oppressing people at the same time. So in other words, you will never see the government doing much to an Indian reservation. I know people will bring up Standing Rock. It wasn't reservation land, and it wasn't ever going to be reservation land that they were going to do it on. You do not see politicians actually going and screw around on an Indian reservation because they will get slaughtered for it, and they like to keep their cushy jobs. So the more you make them look stupid as they come after you, 
the further you kind of back off and the more complex you make things and the more like now you're trying to put together a federal law because some guy in Texas is selling duck eggs. You look really stupid and you really don't have time for it. And I think by being decentralized with this type of approach that you can frustrate them kind of out of that business. Like there's too many little things in too many places. Like we're going to stick to regulating the big stuff because, well, that's what we do well. Well, it amazes me that like um, even a nanny state like California has because they were made to look so stupid on a number of occasions. I think it was in California. There was that lady who was like selling tamales or something. Hmm. Uh, and the police came and like arrested and fined her for selling tamales to her neighbors. Um, so, but like, I think California just passed a home kitchen law where you can make stuff in your own kitchen and sell it to anybody directly. Because, like, even in California, like, there's a level of stupidity that was too far, (laughs) which, you know, you basically finally reached that, uh, but they did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So another thing maybe we could talk about before we wrap up here is a little bit more about, like, for people dealing with their own their own stuff. Like, one of the questions I get a lot about is, you know, I, I moved to farm country, and what do you know? Everybody here sprays stuff. And, and people dealing with overspray and things like that, because, like, all of a sudden you got, like, a cloud of glyphosate, like, coming onto your property. Uh, and you mentioned in your notes you might have some ways to help people deal with that. Uh, well, you know, one of the things, if you haven't moved to land yet, like – Make it a priority to find a property that is somewhat well protected from that nonsense because, you know, the past couple years have been record breaking years for drift and overspray damage. Um, you know, to the point where like it's even caught mainstream media attention, NPR and a bunch of places, you know, wrote articles about the tension in the heartland um, and, and, you know, neighbors even, um, you know, burning down each other's crop, you know, all kinds of stuff because of, you know, just the amount of damage. And like, you know, if you do have land and you talk about something worth the investment, um, invest in whatever you can to protect your property. So if, if you need to put in a hundred foot, you know, hedgerow of multi-species plant life to barricade and protect your productive growing spaces from your neighbor's stupidity, uh, you know, it's either move or do that because the damage of spray and, you know, overdrift and spray, especially because of the new formulations of herbicides they're now applying, it it's just so bad. Um, just so systemically damaging. Um, and you know, like the drift and overspray now, like if it lands on your high tunnel, it can ruin the plastic. So like if, if it drifts on a day that's sunny and that stuff lands on the plastic and you know, then the sun hits the chemicals. It, I, I've had a number of farmer friends who lost all the plastic on half a dozen high tunnels. So you're looking at, you know, five hundred bucks a high tunnel 
to replace the plastic plus all the cleanup though. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen when a tarp or a piece piece of plastic um, goes brittle. Oh yeah. It's, you know, um, it's, um, oh. Yeah. Imagine that over six high tunnels. No, I refuse um, to imagine that. You know, so like <laughs> if, if you're somebody who is at risk of drifting over spray, you really have to take a lot of precautions and do a lot of extra front end labor to protect yourself if you get hit, you know, so like you should be doing weekly pictures of everything you're growing um, and, and, you know, records of what you're growing and stuff. Um, and then obviously anytime your neighbors are spraying, you want to be taking pictures, pulling weather reports, um, you know, it's it's such a pain in the butt. It drives me crazy that drift and overspray is allowed to go on the ways it goes on currently. But, what about natural barriers, um, riparian barriers, things like that? Well, again, you know, you want to go multi-species. So you want, you know, both like quick growing really resilient tree species. Um, and obviously like since people who listen are from all over, you know, the best species for your area is going to vary. Um, but, but, you know, find and consult with someone like Ben, if you're in the Northeast or, you know, talk to Nick Ferguson, if you're in the, you know, the South, South central, um, find people who can give you good recommendations um, you know, to build that living, um, absorptive, um, you know, resilient ecosystem that can buffer you from your neighbors. So, cause your neighbors generally no longer have any financial incentive not to spray right up to the property line. Yeah. I think a good way to find like trees and stuff that will work. Go look at the, the remaining tree lines in your area on the farms where they're spraying and look at what they haven't been able to kill. <laughs> right? If you look at it, it's like hackberry and mulberry, well, then you know, and chokecherry. Like, okay, these three trees can survive this crap because they're growing here. You know, and that's that, I think that's a good way to come up with like your woodlock. Because the, the type of stuff I'm talking, if it can be productive, great. But really, the whole purpose is keep their icky geek over there, you know, at least as much of it as you can. But I yeah. never even thought, you know, talking to you, I never even thought about it accelerating how quickly plastic goes brittle. Because that's, you're right, it's like, it just, like, I could see, like, brittle plastic being hit by a windstorm. And just little shards of that crap everywhere. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, it's it's such a, this, I, I have a really friend um, whose farm was hit three times in two years by spray and drift. And him and his family are just completely quitting farming because of it, because they're not going to get any proper compensation or satisfaction from the legal system. And their neighbors know that. So their neighbors know there's no penalty for them to continue to violate their neighbor's property rights and destroy their livelihood. Um, and so it's, man, few things government subsidies and spray and drift are, are, are some of the things that most get my get stuck in my craw. 
I mean, my, my advice to people is if you can, and I know you, sometimes you have to do what you can with what you have, but if you can, don't homestead where there are conventional farms. You yes. know, and you might have to use land that's not as ideal for agriculture, but I would rather have land that I have to put some terraces in, do some earthworks, do some soil improvement, uh, be creative, create some of my own infrastructure as far as roadways and pathways and access, and do all that, and not be sprayed with atrazine and glyphosate and God knows what else to hate, right? Um, then have land that's really flat and really nice and deep soil, but, you know three or four times a year, some kind of toxic cloud is being drifted onto it. Oh yeah. You're, you're, you're just exactly right. <laughs> so as I said earlier, if you're looking, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking, you know, it's, it, it's high priority in terms of protection from drift and overspray because a lot of the other things, yeah, it'll take time. Yeah. It'll take money. Yeah. It'll take creativity. But but you can build soil, fix water. You, you know you can do all these other things. But you can't move a thousand acre corn or soy farm that abuts your property. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what one of those permanent. Uh, you know the scale of permanence. That's a, that's maybe not a hundred percent permanent. That's like a ninety nine percent permanent problem that you're going to have there. It's like a mountain. It's not going away. Yeah, and. And, and, you know, the other thing that I tell people is, you know, when you look at properties, don't assume that because corn and soy are not on top of you right now, that they won't be in another five to ten years. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, like, when we first bought our property, it was a solid, you know – probably two miles to the closest corn or soy row cropping. And over the past decade, they are now, you know, only, you know, they're down to about 1.2 miles away. Like, like I used to be able to drive, you know, we lived down a gravel road, then down a dead end road, then down a side road called Snake Road. And Snake Road, you finally reach... Um, you, you know, you, you reach a state highway, highway 60. Um, so it used to be, I did not see any corn or soy until I got all the way up on highway 60. Okay. And now I go down our gravel road. I go down our dead end side road and I hit snake road and there's corn and soy all over snake road that was not there even just two years ago. So the the stuff's just like a spreading cancer. Yeah, yeah. I think one way to head that off too is like so people don't farm corn and soy unless they have big flat spaces. Yes. So, so like you know one of one of Toby Hemingway's thing was the hill people versus the field people and how that kind of leads toward a direction toward anarchy and, and libertarianism. The more you go up in the hills, <laughs> uh, and I think there is something to be said for that. And, I mean, I, I like that my property's mostly flat. It makes my life easier. But, you know, it's probably the reason I don't have to worry about it is that nobody's going to put a plow in the ground here. And if there's something that keeps them away, like it's just not – if it's not going to be profitable even with subsidy to farm corn and soy, then you're probably not going to have people farming corn and soy in your backyard. Yeah, thankfully we're just hilly enough 
that they're only going to get so close. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing, man. So tell but, people – go ahead. Oh, I'm just amazed though because like one of the places they put a soy field in, it is relatively – it's one long sloping hill, which is probably why they're able to get away with it. But I mean part of the soy field has a significant slope to it. Um, and, and that's what subsidies do because because like a lot of what's been turned into corn, coin and soy all around us um, used to all be, you know, pasture land for cattle. Um, it, you know, one track of land was like an 800 acre beef farm and another track was a hay field that was, you know, used to supply hay for a beef farm. And, um, you know, one of the reasons it's spreading so much is because the subsidies encourage them to keep putting riskier and more marginal land into those unprofitable crops. And, and it just kills me, you know, just to realize that that's what my tax money and my, you know, children's debt servitude to the federal government is paying for. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. Um, tell people a little bit more about your book as we wrap up here. What can they expect to find if they pick up a copy? Um, so the book... You know, Nick and Ben actually both reviewed it. I don't know if you got a chance. I don't. Did you get a paper copy? Oh, I do have a paper copy, and I did check it out. Yeah. So, um, you know, Nick and Ben both loved it. It's a mixture of just like hard fought experience with, you know, I think about fifty or sixty projects, some from our own farm, and a whole bunch um, contributed by my friends. So, so the book isn't just me. Um, I have people from all across the United States who donated ideas, um, really, really neat projects and ideas to help you homestead in an efficient and affordable manner. Um, so, so it's a mixture of, you know, funny stories that you'll learn from, um, discussions of a bunch of different homesteading issues, and then a bunch of projects and ideas. Um, that I, you know, I guarantee is one, as one person said when they reviewed the book, you know, in, in almost every chapter, you're going to get something that is worth the price of admission for the whole book. Um, cause there's just that much good stuff we tried to pack in. Yeah. And what I like about your book is a lot of books are written by people that are, well, I'm doing it. Uh, your book's kind of written more from an I've done it standpoint, which I think is really important today. Um, this, the stuff you talk about are things that you actually did learn from, adjusted along the way, as you built an actual homestead that your family actually lives on and and still wants to be there. Uh, I think there's like we almost need a name for like people that said the hell with homesteading after trying it for a while, um, and and you don't want to be that person. And I really think if people follow your advice, that they'll be more likely to be one of those people that in ten years that's very happy about that decision to give homesteading a go rather than one of these people that you see on YouTube telling you why homesteading sucks so bad. And when I listen to those people, I always like, you know, I don't agree with you, but I know, I understand why you feel that way. Oh yeah. Well, you get it. It's like I said in the earlier part, you know, somebody was telling me how they were spending 10 hours a week weeding. No. If I had to weed 10 hours a week, I wouldn't want to homestead either. <laughs> I don't know where the heck you live that weeds grow that fast. So, I mean, 
I mean, <laughs> I mean, here, here in Kentucky, weeds grow pretty fast. Okay, uh, weeds die with everything else here, man. <laughs> Yeah, you, you you have that Texas advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's an advantage. Yeah, when we're dying. Uh, so, uh, and then tell us about your book, your next book that's going to be due out, I guess, this winter. Well, I I, I have three books. Okay. I think I've gone totally crazy, but I just at this conference I was just at, I signed an agreement with a publisher to do two more. So at the end of December, my weed book is due. Um, so this is a book a bunch of people asked me to do because again, we, we were spending so much time weeding and, and, and it was one of those kind of like, you know, aha moments where I was just like, if I'm going to have to weed this much, I'm either going to quit homesteading or I'm going to conquer weeding. It's over the course of about a year. We reduced our weeding like over 75%. Um, And this book is just all about homestead and small farm scale approaches to getting off the weed treadmill. Um, you know, so it goes over solarization and oculation and cover cropping and, you know, using both organic mulches and then inorganic mulches, just all of that great stuff. Uh, but with a great attention to detail to the pros and cons and costs and benefits and drawbacks of all these different tools. Um, so, so that, you know, hopefully it'll be a book where like you can really dig in and then apply and really make some great headway for those of us who are growing in the ground um, and, and haven't, haven't embraced the world of aquaponics. <laughs> um, and so then I'm, um, You know, I, I gave a talk on elderberry syrup at this Mother Earth News Fair, and it was like standing room only. Like, I, I gave the talk on a whim just because we started an elderberry syrup business last year. And um, I figured, hey, it goes along with what I'm already doing, um, and it's a good time of year for it. And, man, the talk was just like wall-to-wall -wall people. Um, and so the one publisher I work with was like, We should do an elderberry book because there isn't a book on elderberry. Um, so I just dove in this week to starting a, a book all about the history, the history, cultivation, propagation, and use of elderberry. Um, so that one I think is due in like March. And then my wife and I are going to do a book on sourdough together. Um, so it's going to be a very busy winter upgrading pig infrastructure and writing a whole bunch of books <laughs> very very cool man well hey i appreciate you being with us today stay in touch with us as these books come out we'll try to get you back on uh as you have more available to people and we'll make sure we definitely have links uh to your your most current book in the show notes today and john man thanks for the work you do and thanks for taking the time to be with us today great always great to speak with you jack hope you have a great day Okay, great interview there with John. John's a great guy, and he's uh, really dedicated to helping people get the most out of their life through homesteading. And uh, he's done a lot of great work over the years. Uh, with it wrapped up, I want to remind you guys you can help support the show a couple ways. One, you become a member of the Member Support Brigade. To do that, go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and from there you can see how to sign up. You can see all the great discounts we offer. 
you'll be helping support the show at about 18 cents an episode. In return, you'll get enough discounts. And if you use a few of them every year, you'll get all your money back and then some. Most people that are members for a long time have told me that they actually consider it a profitable thing to be an MSB member, that they, they put more money in their pocket than it ever takes out from them. You can learn more, again, just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. The other way you can support us, do your online shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the items that I have reviewed uh, on Amazon. And uh, you can do your shopping from there. You can see the, the deals of the day. Sometimes there's some really awesome deals of the day on Amazon. But in any event, if you start shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you do support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And it's really painless to do that. I have a little cheap product for you today. It's seven bucks. Seven dollars, not a lot of money. It's not a prog product that everybody is going to want. But if you shoot video with a cell phone, you're going to want this product. It is a tripod adapter. I know I've brought you one before from a company called DaVoice, D-A-V-O-I-C. This one is by a different company. Uh, this company is called Carlus, C-A-R-L-U-S. And uh, it, is, it is vastly superior to the DaVoice product. The DaVoice product I liked because it was universal in that it just had a little kind of stretchy thing, grabs onto the phone and attached to your, your, uh, your tripod shoer, your monopod shoer, what have you, and boom, you were, you were golden. It worked. And it only held things in landscape mode, which is, you know, with your phone horizontal. Which I had no problem with, because I am, I am a, a, a big hater of something called vertical video syndrome. That's where you go to YouTube, you're watching a video, and it's just little narrow strip video. Um, so I didn't mind that limitation, and it worked okay. And, and that was the thing, it was cheap and it worked okay. This thing, it has an actual clamp with thumb screws on it. The thumb screws have rubber gaskets, so it clamps down tight without stripping it, holds it, doesn't come loose. It is... Made of plastic, metal for the screws and all, but plastic body, but not cheap, flimsy plastic. This is heavy, uh, quality plastic, the right material for the job. And by turning the one thumb screw, you can flip it to portrait or horizontal orientation. The reason I went out and found this is Dorothy and I, of course, started doing videos last month on Instagram at our Instagram channel, it's a Jack Life. Instagram videos need to be vertical, and I understand, I don't get upset about vertical video syndrome. What is vertical video syndrome, you ask? I just explained it, but to fully understand it, I will put a link to a public service announcement about for YouTube videos and such uh, in the show notes today, so you can look at it if you want to. But this little product is seven bucks. They have an upgraded version, it's like twelve. The twelve dollar one comes with a little tabletop tripod and a little Bluetooth clicker. And that Bluetooth clicker, all it really does is let you turn video on and off, or if you have still set up, you can do still pictures, click, click, click. I cannot speak for the little tripod. It can't be that great because it's only about a $4 add-on. Um, but if you want a little Bluetooth remote, it's the exact same remote that DeVoice uses. Uh, a lot of people use it. It's kind of an off-the-shelf product that, that is available that people put into packages. So I know that works. Simple as it is, cheap as it is, it works really good. Um, it's worked great for me. So you can check out the review, and if you have any need to mount your cell phones when you're shooting video, and you probably should because it makes it not all shaky and what have you. I have not found a better product to do this with, and bang for the buck, seven bucks, come on. It's the kind of thing that you get from me all the time. It works, it just works, and it just works all the time. Again, it's a universal cell phone tripod mount by Carlos. It gets a, it gets a, a perfect A score from FakeSpot, and Carlos themselves get a perfect A score. They have some other cool stuff. Uh, as well, so you might check out the vendor uh, when you check out the product. 
With that, let's go ahead and wrap up the show with the uh, song of the day today as we finish up Chris Ledoux week. This is just a fun kind of honky-tonk song. It was clearly uh, picked by John Adam to be a Friday song if I didn't have the disruption last week with going off to the VA Bev conference. Um, it just it, it really is a great Friday song, but I'm going to play it for you on a Wednesday. And it's called $5 Fine. And it is kind of like a, a, a fun honky-tonk song. And the concept being, don't, don't come here as a Debbie Downer. You know, the people, and I, this makes me think back for some reason to my military days. I had this good friend, Brad. And Brad was kind of manic, I, I guess is the best way to describe things. You know, like, he would be really happy and he's kind of the life of the party or he'd just be depressed. And, and he was never more depressed than when he was bummed out about a girl that he met that we all knew he was never going to end up with anyway, who went back to the States and he was stuck in Panama. And, you, you know, everybody gets off work, everybody's happy, everybody comes back. Brad is wearing his, his like, cut-off sweatpants, curled up with his yellow writing pad, writing sorry letters to his, his, uh, his girl that was basically using him. He'd be like, put that shit down, and let's go. Shut up. Get dressed. We're going out. And uh, the, the Clayton NCO club that I hung out with at where I, when I was in Panama most of the times, Uh, had some great, great experiences there. Some great memories of it. Don't want to go back to that life. You know, that was a young man's life. Uh, but it definitely was the kind of place this song was not yet written. Uh, but it would have went over well. A $5 fine for whining. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. We're a fun-loving crowd. Kind of rowdy and loud Our jukebox won't play no sad songs So don't come in here And cry in your beard Cause we don't care about who done who wrong We got a five dollar fine for whining We'll tell you before you come in About your clothes or your hair This party is open to all Yeah, we like a good joke And it's all right to smoke We got just one rule on the wall We got a five dollar fine for whining We'll tell you before you come in Too many rules 
That's one thing you can't say about us Cause we all get along When we sing the same song There's just one thing that causes a fuss We got a five dollar fine for whining We'll tell you before you come Five dollar five.